Uh, We're going to continue our series on gospel enjoyment this morning. Uh, It's in line with our prayer for this year uh, that we would become a people with a deep satisfaction and joy in Jesus. That we'd become a people that have this deep satisfaction and joy in Jesus. Last week we talked about joy. This week we're going to be talking about satisfaction. Uh, And I want to start with uh, this quote from Amanda Gorman. She's an amazing poet. She's from L.A. She's like L.A. born and raised. Our education system produced her, plus, you know, God and all of the gifts that he put inside of her. She, you might remember her. She read a poem at the inauguration a few years ago. But she said this. I think she's still a teenager, in fact. But she said this. She said, the single greatest challenge of our era is to transform without wrath, without war, or weariness. I think that that's a pretty astute observation from a really young person. Uh, I think that what what she's saying, and we haven't had a chat about it yet, maybe one day we will, but I think what she's saying is, is that the primary modes in which we try to achieve change even within us, within our families, even within society, are those three things, those three outcomes. That maybe if we're so angry, if we're boiling up with rage, it'll put stuff into motion. If we're really angry with ourselves, if we're really angry with those that we live with, if we're really angry with society and people know it, then somehow that'll get some change to occur. I think she also, when she talks about war, I think it's a pretty astute observation that we view that whole thing of change or peace, it has to come through a battle of conflict with casualties somewhere. Whether that's within your life, in your like immediate sphere, within work, uh, within any part of society, we think for change to really happen, there's got to be this conflict with a winner. And then I think at the very end, she's like, the big challenge is for us to be transformed in this era without weariness, that we kind of operate, the big temptation is to operate with this mentality of striving, that if I work really, really hard, if I give everything I have, if, if I'm consumed with stress and anxiety and I spill it all out, that's the only way to have any kind of change or hope, or anything like that. And it always leads to weariness. And so she says, the single greatest challenge of our era is to transform without wrath, war, or weariness. That's that's like a powerful quote. Praise God, the truth of the scriptures are more uh, hopeful than that. Because you might be like, well, that sounds great. How do we transform in some other way? without just being angry with ourselves or, you know, doing something like that. Uh, We believe that this year God wants to break that cycle of striving in our lives, uh, in that kind of war that we think we have to fight and bring peace to our very souls, bringing a wellspring of life deep within us, uh, a contentment, a satisfaction that comes from outside of us, that comes from out. Uh, outside of exhaustion and war, that it comes through him and him alone. And the great temptation for us as a church, as someone who's you know, been around and, and knows, knows you people, right? The great temptation for our church is to see the process of following Jesus as work, as war, as wearisome. The great temptation for us is to think and to believe that the path of following Jesus is only wearisome 
war, and work. But Jesus says that uh, he's the one that gives life, that he came to bring life and bring it abundantly. That whoever relies on him will be satisfied. That's awesome, right? Fantastic, you might think. Brad, I don't want wrath. I don't like being exhausted. I don't like being consumed with all of these worries and all these things. How can I get that satisfaction that seems so elusive, uh, especially to Mick Jagger uh, and the Rolling Stones, right? He can't get no satisfaction. Uh, So today we're going to read the Gospel of John where Jesus has these three conversations basically with three different types of people. And through that, we're going to understand how exactly it is that we can become people that rely and experience satisfaction. It's from John chapter 4, uh, verse 1 to 42. This is what it says. It says, Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, he was, it was not Jesus who was baptizing, but it was his disciples. So he left Judea and went back to, once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria, and so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, Near the plot of ground, Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? Because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would ask him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to come, keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is that you've had five husbands, and the man you're with now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus said, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are a kind of worshipers the Father is seeking." God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, who's called Christ, is coming, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus said, 
I, the one speaking to you, I am he. And just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving the water, her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? My food, Jesus said, is to, be the, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it is still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and that the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you did not work for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Then many of the Samaritans came from the town and believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything that I ever did. So the Samaritans came to him, Jesus, and they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more believed. And they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. This is God's word. Quick, quick recap, uh, if you will. The story is, you know, Jesus is going between places. Uh, he could walk around Samaria, but instead he goes through it. Uh, you might be thinking, oh, Samaritans, I know that story. It's about the, the guy who gets beat up, and then all of these religious people walk past this guy that got beat up, and then the Samaritan, who's a big enemy, and it shocks everyone, comes, and he helps the guy on the side of the road, and it's like this big like racial tension story, right? That parable of the Good Samaritan. It's a good story because it's true. Like people did not like each other. The Jewish people and the Samaritans did not like each other at all. It goes back way back into history. When they uh, separated from each other, they had their own little kind of civil war and discord. And then they went through cycles and generations of one being invaded and asking the other for help and them not helping. And then the other being invaded and saying, can you help us? And no, until one got conquered, then the other got conquered. And then they kind of eventually filtered back and established for themselves their own kind of religious rules and hatred towards one another. Like that's what's happening. Jesus is walking through this area. Uh, if you remember the way last year when we did parables, that's where Jesus was telling his parables, was in this kind of land, uh, this kind of hostile environment. And he sits down at this well by himself uh, because he has physical needs. Like Jesus uh, has needs. He's tired from the journey. Uh, the disciples go into town to buy food and he's sitting there and as luck would have it, maybe more than luck, a woman comes and sits down and, and she's there to get water. Uh, the fact that she's coming in the middle of the day to get water kind of shows us she's not very popular with the society that comes to get water. You know, like most people do that in the beginning of the day and the end of the day. That she would come in the middle uh, and that it's explicit in John that it's at noon that she comes and does this kind of shows us she is not part of the center of society 
at all, right? Um, it's like people who, uh, you know, go to McDonald's because it's the best coffee in the world, and everybody else in L.A. is like, no, you do not belong with us, right? It's that kind of snarkiness in the society that still exists today. Uh, you don't belong here with us. And so Jesus asks this lady, because she has the tools to get water, she says, can you get water from me? And she says, why are you talking to me? Why are you asking me for something like this? Uh, Jesus says, you know what? You should be asking me for water, because what I could give you would be living and lasting. She gets kind of confused. She's like, how can you get water? You have nothing. I'm the one that has the tools to get water. And then Jesus tells her, like, no, no, uh, I can give you water. Everyone who comes to this well every day has to get more, more and more. Like, you're designed that way. You have to get more water to wash your clothes, more water to wash uh, your body, more water to drink, and more water to cook. But the well that he offers provides this wellspring of life that continually sustains uh, and makes people satisfied that they never have to drink again. And then Jesus tells her, how about you go and tell your husband about this stuff? And just sort of this small aside, I think sometimes we think uh, that uh, Jesus tells her and kind of reveals that she doesn't have a husband, that she's had many partners in her life and all of that just to kind of do a trick so that she might believe. I think instead uh, he's confronting this sneaky suspicion that most of us have, which is surely Jesus doesn't want anything to do with me. Uh, surely uh, I'm not like the one that, that God sees and says, yes, I definitely want Brad in the kingdom. But instead, Jesus goes to this person, and I don't know who like, specifically has to hear this, but this is kind of a side that's not super part of the message, but it's this, that uh, Jesus knows you. He knows what's happening in your life. He knows the shame that you carry, the struggle you carry, the pains that you know, revolve around your life, the insecurities and the burdens that you carry. He knows of all the mistakes that you're trying to hide even now. He knows all of it, the sins that you live, and it's not stopping him from pursuing you. That's just the truth of that little part. And then she says, wow, this is amazing. You know everything about me. You know everything that I've ever done. And it doesn't fill her with embarrassment or shame, but actually glee, which I think that that's like the real knowing and being seen and being loved, that, that God sees and knows and loves us anyway. And instead of us going and hiding even more, it brings us out. And then she says, you know what's great is that one day the Messiah is going to come and he's going to explain all this to us. And then Jesus says, I'm, that's what's happening now. I am the one explaining this to you, and I am the Messiah. Then she runs into town to tell everybody. As she's running into the town, the disciples come back from trying to gather food, uh, and they have all these questions about what Jesus is doing, but John is pretty explicit in telling us that they don't ask. They have zero curiosity about what Jesus has just been doing. Uh, they, don't, they don't have any desire to actually ask him. Instead, they tell him over and over again, eat the food that we just went and got for you. Eat it, eat it, you know? And Jesus is telling them back, like, look, look. No, like, I am satisfied by the food of doing the will of God. 
uh, of seeing lost things brought in, of seeing a harvest of people coming to belief and repentance. I think Jesus is like, I'm psyched about what just happened. That's what Jesus is saying. What just happened with this woman is everything to me. Uh, No bread or fish or pretzel, nothing you could give me could do what that experience just did for me. But they're still like, Rabbi, you need to eat. Because they did that work for him, right? They went and did that thing for him. Now he should take it, tell them thank you, and all of these things. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he says, there's this time and there's this harvest look, and he's looking out as these people from the town are coming to him. And he says, look at the plentiful harvest. All of this has been done. God's work, his operation, Jesus being in the world, Jesus speaking these things, all of this has been done that there might be a harvest of people to believe and be filled and to have eternal life, right? It's like, this is what's really exciting to me, that those who sow and those who reap might be joyful together at the end of all of this work. And then the people come into the town or come to Jesus from the town uh, and they ask Jesus, can you stay here longer? Can you teach us more? Jesus obliges. He stays in this, you know, for his society, this God-forsaken place with these God-forsaken people, but they're no longer at all God-forsaken because Jesus is there saying it doesn't matter where you worship, the time is coming where people just need to worship the Father. Like it's pretty miraculous And then people stay, and when Jesus leaves, they say, we no longer believe just because of what this lady said. We now believe because we've heard it for ourselves from Jesus. And that's the whole whole story, uh, if you missed it and you were thinking about uh, how many babies were crying. And you were like, I didn't really pay attention to the Bible. That was the whole story, okay? And there's a few things that I think that this passage tells us about what must change within us. I think the first thing that that must change or alter, if if we're people like, I want to be satisfied like that lady, I want to be satisfied like those people, I don't want to be like the disciples who are like not really getting it, I want to be someone who trusts and believes and is satisfied, not living the war and the rage and all that stuff that Amanda Gorman talked about. I want to be transformed and be satisfied. Uh, a few things have to change. First, there has to be a change of desire. Uh, I think we were, I mean, I know this, science tells us, we were made to need food. Like every day, we need to eat. Uh, If you don't eat, you're starving. You're in this process of not being living. Over and over again, day by day, we were created to, to chew things, to put it into our stomachs, to digest in there, and then, like, that's how we were designed. We were also designed and made to sleep. Like, humans need sleep. Every day, over and over again, our bodies wear down, and we have to get in bed and fall asleep. Uh, I have this cool new watch that tells me I have to sleep. And then when I wake up, it tells me how much I charged my body. It's like a video game, but life. It's pretty awesome. But it tells me over and over again that a human needs to sleep. A human also is created for breath, needing oxygen. Every day, all the time, over and over again, we have to breathe somewhere between like 10 and 15 times like a minute. Like we have to breathe. Oxygen in, oxygen out. And we were also made for thirst. To have, uh, we need water, fresh water, 
that we can drink deeply and we need it every day throughout the day. Another thing I learned from my watch. I thought it was like one glass of water once a week. I was like, these other beverages have water in them. (laughs) Apparently not. Apparently we need to be hydrated. And that's what this lady was doing and what she was working for. Just those basic, essential human needs. The need to have water. And that's what Jesus was asking for. Can you give me a cup of water? But there's this other layer of need, of desire, that Jesus begins talking to her about. The need to know God and to be known by God. In the same way that you were created for all of those other kind of basic needs, you were created with this intention and this design that you would know the creator of the universe who marked you in his image, that you would know him and he would know you. Uh, to be alive to the words and the nature and the character and the voice of the one who made you. Like, that's, you were designed for that. That's like the baseline. In the same way, we often think, oh, yeah, water, food, and then there's this higher need, you know, like the hierarchy of needs guy that you learn about in general psych. It's like, no, no, that, that is a basic fundamental need to know God, just like breathing oxygen in and out. There is no humanity apart from that. To know who you are, to know how you're loved, to know how you're protected and secure, to know that you were made for that, like that is the essence of the human life. To feast forever with God, with no uh, hindrance, to rest in his presence, to drink deep, to breathe in deeply of the actual presence of God. You were made for that. Uh, You were created for that kind of satisfaction of souls. That's what all the Psalms are talking about. That that in God alone am I satisfied. We were made for that. But we're looking for that kind of knowing, that kind of uh, profound depth of soul. We're looking for it elsewhere, and we're super confused. We believe that if somehow we're able to purchase and consume tons and tons of food, or at least have enough money that we could purchase whatever we might need physically, then that will fill us and we will get to that point of deep satisfaction. We think that if we get other people to think that we're important, then somehow we will get that satisfaction of soul that we were made for. If we perform relationally and people actually like us and enjoy us and think that we're awesome, if we do that, then I'll be satisfied. And so not only do we go to the well each day for water, we also go to the well each day. We show up to work and we give it all we have trying to get status and approval and we're drawing from that well every day. It's tiresome, it's laborious, and it doesn't satisfy That's what Jesus is talking about. It's like, I have water for you that you won't have to keep coming back to. Uh, I think about um, some of the, you know, the great athletes of our time. What a time to be alive. I mean, all the great athletes. But what's fascinating is, and I'm just going to talk about my good friend, LeBron James. I mean, when he was drafted as an 18-year-old 20 years ago, uh, they were like, we hope he's an all-star. That would be good. If he's, a, if, he's one of the, if he's the best player in the NBA at a period of time, that would be good. He was, and they're like, that's not enough. Like, he has to keep achieving more. Do you guys, some of y'all are from Ohio, and you know what I'm talking about. Others of you are like, he's a basketball player. But what they do is over and over again, they keep changing 
the goal and the measure. Oh, he has to win a championship, he does. Oh, you know what? He has to win more. Oh, he's now kind of close to Michael Jordan. He really needs to win a lot more than that. Uh, Now he's about to break the record for most uh, points scored in the regular season. And people are like, yeah, but he did it with a bunch of three-pointers. Side note, you take all the three-pointers off, he's still like fourth on the list of points scored. (laughs) But it's like always moving, always changing. I think that sports always reflects society and what goes on within us. Your uh, goalposts or the measurements of your satisfaction or what makes you good and okay is constantly changing. Uh, You should have more clients. Oh, you should have, you know, better children. You should have a bigger house. You should have, like, better clothes. You should, like, those shoes are cool. You should have more cool shoes, right? This is just a personal one. But it's never, ever enough. Ever enough. Also to the person, it's like I open the box, I smell the shoes, it fills my brain with all sorts of chemicals. Uh, And then I close the box and I'm like, I really need another pair, right? And that's what Jesus is talking about. We keep going to that well over and over again and it never satisfies. It never satisfies. You can talk to the people who have reached the pinnacle and they still want more and more because that thing that they thought would give them all of the peace never does. And Jesus says, I'm not here to offer you a drink. I'm offering a a drink that will turn into a wellspring within your soul. He's talking about, I'm going to put a well within you that will constantly be producing life inside of you now and forever. A wellspring that will produce eternal life. The thirst that doesn't come back. You have it and you're satisfied. You receive and you don't need more. And the only more that you have is reproducing within you. That's the image that he gives. And here's the remarkable, fundamental truth, is that Jesus isn't offering a good line or like a good new method. Uh, He isn't telling uh, her and telling us this truth about how, who God is and how he works within our souls and says, you know, if you, if you take this pill along with good diet and good exercise, you could lose weight, you know? It's like, if you add this to your current regimen of good things, you could have a wellspring of life. No, he's telling her and he's telling us that the creator of all things, who fashioned you, who names you, who knows you, who pursues uh, the carnage version of you at this day and time, this person who's broken the world and who breaks the world, Uh, who's broken themselves, this God has come uh, for the sake that you would have life and have life abundant. He's not saying, here's a good thing to believe. He's saying, I've come who I am into this world, pursuing each of you that you might have life and have it abundantly. And he doesn't just try to do those things. He doesn't just want to do those things. Christ has succeeded Jesus isn't saying, this might work. He knows. He knows that this will be the thing that provides abundant, lasting life for all who believe. 
He will die surrendering his life and all that he is so that you will not die and won't have to go to that, that, that well of death. He will rise again, ensuring that every dark, sad, destructive rage and wrath that's due you is now just abundant life. That's his resurrection. He knows that he's going to ascend so that the helper might come, that you would be given the Holy Spirit put within you and that you would become his people and he would become our God and you would live with him forever. When Jesus says, I have this thing to give you, that you would be constantly always satisfied, he's saying, I'm not just wanting to do it, I will accomplish it, and it's for whoever wants it. You will be satisfied. Like a grandpa on Thanksgiving after the meal who like goes back into a coma satisfied, like a child in the arms of their mother after they've like gotten a scratched knee, like a student who gets accepted into the college of their choice. But it's not food that satisfies or some familial moment or professional satisfaction. It's a satisfaction in our souls and it's a well that's been dug there and placed there by the one who made you and did everything to accomplish life again for you. You were created for it, and he's done all that is possible and all that's required to bring life to you again. And so the woman says, give me that water. Give it to me. I want to drink, and I never want to come back here again. Give it to me, she says multiple times. An incredible desire swells up within, here, within her, and she actually wants it. And, and I guess this has been a long way coming for me to say, do you want it? Do you desire living water? I want to be a little explicit. I've been a pastor now for a terrible amount of years, 15 years. It's like that's what this year is for me, which is kind of shocking. We were talking about being middle-aged earlier, Chris and I, because he's also middle-aged. <laughs> But in those years, I've come to believe that one of the most important questions for a follower of Jesus uh, that must be answered is this. Do you want to be satisfied by Jesus? To me, it's now become the greatest indicator of future growth that you might have. It's the biggest indicator of like your, your present kind of health or your past experience as someone who says, I actually want Jesus to make me well and to satisfy my soul? Do you want him? That's actually the question. Is there any desire within you to have an eternal life that starts and ends with him? And in my experience, those people who say yes, they're the ones who like actually grow. But those who say, well, maybe, you know, if you could conjure up the desire for me, or the other leaders of this church, or if this thing was organized better, if you could somehow get me to want it more, or those who say, sure, Jesus plus all of these other things on the table, that to me is always like, that's the indicator of like, I don't think you're going to taste and see that the Lord is good because you're asking God to somehow make a, 
you know, airplane motion of you getting to eat your vegetables. And it's not vegetables, it's abundant life. And so for us as a church, the question each of us must ponder is this for our like theme and prayer for the year. Uh, Each of us must ask this question, do we even want to be satisfied in Jesus or are we good to keep trying all the other things? Are we... Do we want to be satisfied in Jesus, or are we good to keep trying all the other things? That was the longest one. The other one that must change is a change of our aim. Like, what are we after? Uh, And there's this tension that I think grows, even as I explain all of those things, is aren't we supposed to, you know, go for it? Aren't we supposed to build wealth and leave our children, uh, you know, stuff Uh, Aren't we supposed to set ourselves up? Aren't we supposed to leave a mark on this world? Aren't we supposed to make money and have food and water? Those sorts of things. Aren't we supposed to have that kind of uh, ambition? I think uh, Eugene Peterson uh, says this really well in one of his books, The Long Obedience in the Same Direction. He talks about for the disciple, there's this big difference between aspiration and ambition. An aspiration is something that, like, that we would aspire to, that we want to become and be transformed by. It's a striving and a longing, he says, even an impatience with the mediocrity of the current order of things. He says, because we know God and we, were, we know that this world that he made was created for more, we want more of him, we want this old destructive world to become the new world that he always envisioned. Aspiration is, I want to see God, I want to see him work, I want to know the things that he's doing. But then, there's a ambition. Ambition is aspiration gone crazy, uh, Pastor Pete says. He says, what we do is we remove God from the picture, and all of those aspirations become really unruly, and they drive us to create a crude self-portrait, pursuing our status, our our stress is involved in there, our hunger for acceptance and significance. That makes this new self-portrait that isn't the aspiration that we were created for. Because in aspiration, we're made to do all things, all work, all art, all relationships through a singular lens, a lens of seeing God worshiped through it all, like that's how we were made. But then ambition is a turning in on itself where we say, oh, like all art, all work, all labor, all relationships are now about me and building me up. Eugene Peterson challenges us like, it's not that to desire and to long for more is evil and wicked. It's that we've turned the desire for the one thing that we need more of, more of Jesus, more of him at the center, Right? And instead, we've turned it in on ourselves. Aren't we supposed to pursue excellence in good companies and do good work, raise good kids? Yes, absolutely. But to what end? See, I think most of us uh, and most of the anxiety and stress and exhaustion that we live under comes from trying to do all of those things uh, apart from the purpose of seeing God worshiped. And that's what he talks about here, that the time is coming where he'll find worshipers uh, who are worshiping the Father in spirit and truth because that's the kind of worshiper that he seeks. 
He seeks people who are like, yes, I, I want to give myself to my job and my career and my family, and I want to do all of these things so that Jesus might be worshiped and glorified and that the celebration might continue and be like profound everywhere. That's what I mean when I say a change of aims. To be blessed, to be satisfied in Jesus isn't a forsaking of our responsibilities, but it's a returning to that aspiration to see God and his rule and his presence as the utmost good, as the most significant need from which all other needs flow. And what that kind of change means is, it means that the reality of Jesus uh, changes in us and we go from how will I survive to how will I worship? It shifts us from, uh, the love of Christ shifts us, and it means that we go from, how will I you know, be accepted? How will I be approved? How will, be I, how will I be significant? And it shifts to, what is true? What is good? What is the spirit of the living God doing? It, it shifts us from, how do I perform, to, I know that I'm loved by the Father, and I want to adore him. Those are the shifts that happen. So a change of aim, also a change of motivation. The disciples come, as I said, and they're not curious. They see what's happening, and it's unexpected. They're like, I didn't know Jesus would do this. And they don't ask him, Jesus, what are you doing? Or what do you need? Or how can I be involved in this thing that's happening between you and this woman? Instead, they insist that he receives what they had done. It's pretty amazing. They come back, and it's pretty evident to me that they think that the most significant thing that's happened in the last hour is that they went and got food and came back. (laughs) They went to town. They bought the food. And then there's this kind of sense of uh, dissatisfaction and impatience with him, because they start, you know, dropping the names, like, Rabbi, you should eat, right? They're not saying, hey, Jesus, you should eat, or hey, are you hungry? What do you need? Instead, they say, I've done this labor for you. Why don't you receive what I've done for you? And there's this open secret. It's this open secret within the life of Christianity, which is often that those who do the most like for the church, and do the most for God, who show up the most to the buildings, to the events, to the meetings, are the least satisfied in Christ. It's an open secret, right? All of us PKs, pastors, kids, we know this is true. Those who do the most, who show up the most, are often the least satisfied in Jesus. Verse 34, Jesus says, you know, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's four months until harvest? And he says, but I tell you, open up your eyes. Look at the fields. They're ripe with harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Jesus is like, oh, this whole thing is supposed to be joy. Like, look at the people coming from the town to receive and to believe because I have been working 
in a way that you weren't part of, that you didn't see, that you don't understand, but he's done something to bring life and belief. And he's like, I did it so that we would have joy together right now. It reminds me of the story of the prodigal sons, the, the older son particularly, who's furious, who's angry, uh, because the father has accepted the younger rebellious son back in. The father goes to him and is confused by his older son's anger. And he says, son, like uh, you and I, we've been together this whole time. We've been working the fields together. We've been sharing meals. We've been living life together. We've been planning this business together. We've never been apart. Isn't that great? The son that was away, he's come back. So we're going to throw him a party. But we were together the whole time. But the older son is still furious because he wasn't glad to be doing the work with the father. He was doing the work for the reward. I think that's what's happening with these disciples. And there has to be a change of our motivation. Why is this this open secret that the Christians who show up the most are the least satisfied in Jesus? Is because they don't want Jesus. They want all the other things, the other rewards. We've talked a few times here about the difference between a mercenary and ambassador. Like, which way do you approach service and obedience to Jesus? A mercenary is someone who gets paid by a king to go and perform some tasks. And then when they perform the task, they fought the battle, you know, they robbed the ship, whatever it is, they come back and the king gives them money, a ransom, a reward. An ambassador is someone that the king looks to and says, no, you're going to go into the world because we have a relationship and you're going to be me in the world, right? That's the difference between a mercenary and ambassador. Spiritually, as as disciples, I think that there's a big difference. For mercenaries, sometimes uh, we're motivated by the rewards that haven't been given yet. Like, I'm going to serve and I'm going to obey Jesus because there's going to be something more for me somehow. But the ambassador says, I'm motivated by the love I've already received. A mercenary goes in and they think, everything I do is by the orders of somebody else and I have to do it because they hired me. And I I mean, I know so many disciples in this world who believe I'm going to obey because I have orders and I have to. But the ambassador is not a mercenary. They say everything that they're asked to do, say, and represent is something that they experience themselves. That's the difference with the ambassador. The mercenary points to themselves and their deeds Look how I served. Look what I'm doing. Look how faithful I was. Look how good I was. That's the mercenary. The ambassador points to their king and his deeds. Look how he served. Look how he accomplished. Look how he is faithful and how he is good. Mercenary operates within a contract. I must do these tasks in order to receive. The ambassador operates within a calling. I've been asked and I've been sent. I think John gives us just these helpful questions that the disciples didn't ask for us to sit with Jesus and ask, what do you want? That's the posture of an ambassador. Jesus, what do you want? Jesus, why are you doing this thing? What are you doing right now? Notice it isn't these questions of what do you want us to do? 
No, they're questions of curiosity about what Jesus is up to and what Jesus desires. Lastly, it's a change of belief. Uh, At the very end, the village people, I have no other term for them, but they come out and they they come out really excited that maybe the Messiah who's going to explain all these things to us has come. And they get there because the lady has told them. And they believe because the, the, this woman has told them. And that's awesome. That's how we all come into faith. Somebody testifies or gives this testimony or this witness of this is who Jesus is and this is what he's doing and this is what he's done for me. That's how we all entered the faith. But then they say, now we don't just believe because of what she said. We now believe because we've seen and heard Jesus for ourselves. And that, church, is maturity and growth. Satisfaction in Jesus is found in going from, I believe because of what they said, to I believe because of what you said. Satisfaction grows through knowing firsthand what they say, that Jesus is the Savior of the world. One of the best indicators for us this year and how we're doing in gaining a deep satisfaction in Jesus is going to be uh, how we're growing in knowing Jesus firsthand. Like not through sermons, um, not through other people, but for ourselves directly from the words of God in prayer and the personal formation of our lives. Uh, That's why we're, you know, doing that training on the 21st that's next Saturday, to teach us how can we pursue that, knowing Jesus for ourselves? How can we, you know, see these desires bear fruit? Uh, Lastly, very lastly, there's this book by David Foster Wallace called Infinite Jest. It's super thick. Uh, I was really feeling shameful that I hadn't completed it, still haven't, until I talked to Casey, and he didn't finish it either. But it's amazing, It's an amazing, amazing book about the bottomless pit that is the human desire. And he talks about this one character who's uh, uh, always uh, smoking weed. And this character uh, continually says, this is the last time I'm ever going to smoke weed. And he's like, and and I'm going to go out with the bang." And he has all of these systems of like, I need to buy from somebody that I don't know because then I'll never see them again and I'm not gonna pay them. I'm just gonna take the, the drugs and I won't pay them and then they won't, know, you know, they'll never, never sell me any more drugs. And he, he has this whole system of how he's gonna leave his car and how he's gonna set his voicemail so uh, his colleagues at the university aren't gonna call him. And he has this whole elaborate plan and he accomplishes it and he, and he smokes as much weed until he's sick because that's part of his plan. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to smoke and smoke and smoke and then I'm going to be super sick and I'll never do it again. And then, and David Foster Wallace's brilliance, he gets to the end and he's like, well, I can't wait to do it in two more months. And that is the journey. And what's sad about this book, I haven't gone to the very, very end, but it is a, a, a picture of it seems like there's nothing that will ever satisfy. And I think that's what's powerful about the final words of this entire passage where it says, we know that this man, Jesus, really is the savior of the world. Only Jesus 
can take you out of that cycle that that person was in, that you might be in, that your friends are in. Only Jesus can do that because he is the savior of the world and he came to pull you out of that obnoxious cycle. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for uh, your life and your death and your resurrection. Thank you for the, the hope that we have to be filled and to be satisfied. As we come and take communion, we ask that it would be worship for you, a shifting of our aims and our desires, and that we would see you uh, and you alone. Uh, thank you, Jesus. Amen.